The Academic Podcast Agency. Welcome to the Whitetail Stories podcast. This is a podcast series where we explore exciting experiments in audio storytelling, talk about them, think about them, listen to them. Okay, so we've got a little bit of a change of direction for this episode. Uh, previously, if you've been on this ride with us, we've been making shows where we've been sharing audio stories that we ourselves have made. Uh, but we thought for this episode and for many future episodes, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the greats that are out there um, and some of the big names that have come before us. And for this episode, we are very excited to bring you a story by Ken Nordine. Ken Nordine was one of the utter masters of um, playing with audio storytelling. Um, originally a voiceover artist, um, he moved in the 50s into a word jazz, as he called it, and then into various records that he made exploring the ways that words and sounds and music could fit together. Just to say, when we're talking audio storytelling, both those words get used for a lot of things. Really what we're talking about is stories that are told with sound and music where the two couldn't live apart. They couldn't live apart, they have to live together, and we're interested in experiments in that. Points where you're, where people, creators, are playing with how the two fit together and making something that feels integral and alive. That's what we're looking for, that's, and that's what we're listening to. That's the magic, right? That's the magic that we're both hooked on, is that when it makes a sum that's greater than its parts, that relationship, that tension between the spoken word or the narrated story and the soundtrack, the music, the sound effects, the sound design. Those uh, amazing moments that don't perhaps even make sense or, or certainly, you know, quite often don't make literal sense but create something beautiful. That's exactly it. That's beautifully put. So this is from from one of Ken Nordine's Word Jazz Records. It's a beautiful track called Roger. Um, anyway, enough said. Roger. Okay, let's press play. This is Roger. If you do something long enough, even something that you don't like, that you might even hate, you can begin to do it well enough to make everyone else think you love it. You can even fool yourself if you're not careful. I know. I'm very good at fooling myself. When I was around 16, I decided that I was going to become a great concert violinist. You see, I was given a violin at the age of five as a present for taking castor oil, and I made the best of a bad situation. But at 16, I decided that I was going to really try. Take four or five lessons a week, practice seven or eight hours a day from this tremendous teacher who had just come over from Germany. I say I decided. That's a lie. Roger decided. Maybe you know someone like Raj. I used to think he was the greatest thing that had happened to the piano since Walter Gieseking. He wasn't, but I thought so. But there was one thing about him, a, a tragic character flaw. Something in his smile, his teeth. I told him about it. He didn't know what to say. Oh, he had a game, by the way, that he played with me. 
He had me go to the piano and strike a chord, and then with his back turned on the other side of the room, he'd name all the notes. I'd start with simple chords like a C chord or an F chord, and then I'd get a distended 11th chord or an augmented 7th or a perverted 27th. Still, he'd name all the notes until I wanted to lean on the piano. He had me on my bloody knees in front of his superiority. And I hated him for having absolute pitch. But then, knowing that he'd gone too far, he became kindly. There are certain kinds of kindness that are like fish hooks. He said, you know, you could become the Swedish Yasha Heifetz. <laughs> I love that kind of talk. He transported me from that living room. I was carried by his flattery to some huge stage, something that would make Carnegie Hall seem très intime. And there, in what was larger than Death Valley, I was playing the closing measures of some impossibly difficult concerto, as if it were nothing at all. Thousands upon thousands of people were listening like so many hushed cabbage heads as the last few notes sang out with incredible purity and died away. Then there was a silence after, very much like the quiet that must have followed the Gettysburg Address. And then the audience went mad. Bravo, encore, and the applause sweeping across the stage and I there bowing in the warmth of the footlights, turning every now and then toward Roger who accompanied me just to let a little bit of the applause glance off to show him that I could be magnanimous with power. And then after a half hour of this bravo and encore, I broke my rule against playing encores, which I had made at the age of eight, and played the old folks at home just to make my mother happy. I'll never forget the way it was there in Roger's living room. I'll never forget the bay window and the sunshine and the potted fern that his mother loved so well in Roger. He slithered past me, past the potted adder's tongue that his mother loved so well, through the undulating sunshine with its dust climbing like a Brownian movement toward madness, over to the upright piano. And as he played his favorite composition there in the twilight, the moonlight sonata, I saw, as if for the first time, his teeth. And something inside of me sagged. I said, see you, Raj. And I put my violin in its case. I slammed the front door. I walked the long sidewalk home, not stepping on cracks. And I told F. Terucci, cement contractor, 1927, I'm through with music. <laughs> I've often wondered if F. Terucci, cement contractor, 1927, wanted to lay cement sidewalk like crazy. Wow. <laughs> genius. Absolute genius. Oh. What can you say? What can you say? I mean... Um, <laughs> wow. So I, I'm I'm intrigued 
because I only heard this this morning and I've listened to it a few times. And actually, I recommend to the listeners uh, on, on some of the podcast apps, you can use this. But I've been putting time codes on the stories. So you can actually, um, as I say, on some of the players, you can go back and you can pick out the story just in this podcast. I suggest listening to that a few times because it's only short and it's, it just yeah. gets richer and richer, right? I, the first question I want to ask uh, you, Dan, is how much of that do you feel is written and how much of it do you feel is 100% improvised? I, th- I mean, I think with that one specifically, and there's different things for different Ken Nordine tracks, but that one specifically, I feel so scripted, like the denseness of the language and the the specificity of of his of his imagery is like mm. it, it, it's. I don't think I I I don't think it can be improvised. I don't think you know. There's there's lines in there that just yeah, they're man, so I'd, special. I'd, I'd they? have them tattooed. You know, they're like <laughs> they're so good. <laughs> they're so good. So I I yeah I. But I think he was just so good. Yeah. In the delivery. I mean, it, it reminds yeah. me, the, the, it's a name that you've mentioned a few times uh, in this podcast, and I'm sure actually he'll, we'll get into him again. But uh, Mingus has the same uh, appeal for me in the musical arrangements. This is Charles Mingus, yeah. jazz pioneer. In those, you know, big orchestra pieces that he did where it feels so loose it feels so improvised yeah. yet in order to get that many people playing even remotely you know the same riff at the same time or whatever that needs to be orchestrated right and, yeah. I, and I get the same feeling from this stuff in that it's like it's so loose in its delivery and it's so wonderfully uh, surreal and unpredictable, yet always following a direct storyline totally. through it. And, and I think it's, I, I totally agree. And I think it's, there's two elements in this work which makes it really interesting. There's the voice and, and, the, and the language. And I think Nordine really, um, especially if you listen to other pieces of his work, he really pushed and drove for this kind of sense of um, of looseness or the the spoken voice as a jazz instrument. So uh, less this track, but other things, if you listen to them and think of him like Miles Davis or think of him, you know, like Charlie Parker rather than like a, a, a voiceover artist, it makes total sense because he sits on the beat and his phrasing, like he pushes and pulls like a, like a jazz soloist. So it totally makes sense, that word jazz thing. The other element I think that's interesting is the, is the score. And that's kind of probably why what led me to this one, especially, well, the language and the use of story, but then also the fact that the score feels like it's so, it sits as underscore for most of it. And then it just, it twists where the story twists and it pulls you into the world. And it's like, it also feels totally organic, but it's not. Do you know what I mean? You can tell that it's been really considered and constructed to be able to to mimic the story in that way. Let's talk about the music because the music is in my, I only really caught this on the second listen. To me, there's almost two halves of the music, right? It gets to the point where in the narrative, it turns perhaps an extra degree of sinister. I mean, the whole thing is quite sinister, but there's a moment where uh, Roger or Rog, as he affectionately calls him, it, it turns an extra layer of sinister. And 
the switch seems to be from a more classical palette, or albeit it's quite, um, you know, contemporary uh, out there um, collection of sounds, but it switches to a jazz idiom, right? And and yeah. that's quite interesting because it's really subtle to the point where I didn't clock that the first time round, but actually it really changes the colour hue of what he's saying, doesn't yeah. it? It becomes, it takes it to another place. But it's amazing to me that it was slipped past me. You know, I didn't quite hear that at yeah. first. And so, oh, actually, now we've got this kind of beatnik 50s jazz backing. Um, how did I miss that transition the first time around? But... um I want to know what you think of that. I also want to know what, <laughs> and, and I want to know from the listeners, uh, you know, who is Roger? I mean, I have an idea of who I believe Roger is, but you tell me who you think Roger is. Firstly, the, the point on the, on the score and the switch, I didn't notice it until recently mm. either. And I've listened to that track a lot of times. It's, it's beautifully done. And they're kind of, it seems that they're, if you listen to a lot of Nordin stuff, they're sort of two dominant flavours, this kind of quite avant-garde, um, abstract, soundtracky kind of textures that you get at the start or that we end up in. And then this kind of beatnik, you know, we are a jazz quartet who's playing under a spoken storyteller, which... Personally, I kind of, I get less from, but I still totally, you know, I, I, I really enjoy Again, it Again, well. it's the switch though, isn't it? It's the switch which is so clever because it's a very, it's a very subtle movement of, okay, we're in a new place. And this is something that um, I'm fascinated in about this medium full stop is that there's, there's something subversive about sound in a way that you don't get when there's visuals in that it can transport you places and it can change your mind and your emotions about yeah. things without you realising that it's done it to you, right? It can slip it past you. Whereas if that was visually represented, I think just from the nature of that medium, you would see the change, right? I mean, you'd have to see something. But I love that idea of you start the track... And then halfway through, your emotions are, are moved from A to B and you don't realise that that's been done to you. To me, that's really special. It's true. And he and he sits in this track as well. Like he, The mix of his voice sits like a voice in your head, right? It's so... Yeah. It's something so like it feels so close and so familiar and, and then this world changes around. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, his voice is, is just gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, as a, as a tone, the, as a timbre. Oh, the depth in it. Yeah. And it, it strikes me as well that you can't, you couldn't, you couldn't separate the two. You know what I mean? Like that, that is just a spoken story without that soundtrack would feel, would just lose so much. And the soundtrack without the voice, it's like they're just together. They make something extraordinary, but either part on its own is like, well, okay. It's, so oh, who is Roger? I have no idea. I mean, what a great character. I, and I, I love, I have to point out when, the, when uh, if you listen to it again, when Ken Nordine first references the smile and the teeth and he does a little sharp intake of breath, <laughs> something about his teeth. And that's all, it's all it needs. It's like, it's what a beautiful force. And then when it comes back around and to not mention the teeth any more than just yeah. seeing them and that that's enough that he puts down the violin. I mean, it's, 
Right. Beautiful. Okay. So I'm, I'm fascinated because to me, I've got this quite clear interpretation of it in my head, which um, I don't for one moment think is the correct interpretation. But for me, it's very strongly Roger is himself. It's his alter ego. And it's this relationship is kind of like a coming of age type of narrative. Oh. And it's him pitting himself against the job and perhaps the um, it's got an awful lot to do with that perhaps a teenage ego of trying to achieve a task, deciding that he's going to be great at something, which is a very clear statement at the beginning, right? At the age of 16, that he was going to be this wonderful musician. And that Roger or Rog, and I love the fact that he he has that kind of, uh, you know, the formal name and then the more uh, intimate (laughs) reference to it. it. It's basically him battling with a type of, in a alter ego. This is that's I've never I've never thought that. That's lovely. I lo- I'm, I want to listen to it again with that yeah. in mind. Well, I, I was kind of I was kind of of the mind that maybe he's just the violin teacher. For the purposes of of doing this podcast, you know, I sat there and I I, I listened to it quite closely. And and I suppose again, this is the joy of this, isn't it? And it's again like music. There there is a difference between letting it wash over you, which is probably what I would do more naturally if I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm yeah. gonna, you know, we're we're gonna talk about this. And so I was listening in quite a lot of detail. And to my mind, the teacher is described as another person aside from Roger. But again, I'm not hold I'm not claiming to uh, that this is the, the true reading at all. But that, to me, sets up this wonderful, like, psychodrama. Yeah, yeah. And well, he, he does clearly say it was Roger who yeah. decided. Oh, so good. And can I just point out the line that just is the line to end all lines for me, which is, which is there's a certain kind of kindness that's like fish hooks. Man, that's, that, that line alone is like... You, that has he'd had to have pre-thought mm. of that, you know. There's, it can't be improvised. And I think I seem to remember reading that that Ken Nordine did a lot of these as improvised pieces. So I think that there was a period of time when Ken Nordine was in kind of making these kind of talk radio things with a jazz quartet and was improvising a lot. So a lot of it grew out of these kind of him just he had his voice and they had their instruments and they were kind of they were kind of making things up. But it feels really written. It feels really considered. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's just, maybe that's just, you know, the hand of God coming in and it's just a flurry of magic and majesty coming. Maybe he's the conduit at that moment. Yeah, I, I could see that, that perhaps he's told that story and many of those lines, you know, like the fish hooks many times because they're so strong. But actually he's improvising in exactly how they're put together in that moment. Again, like a jazz musician, right? You know those licks, you know those scales, you know what collection of notes will fit over that chord. But until you're in the moment actually performing it, the joy is in the spontaneity for the performer as well as the listener, you know, and you, you're all, totally, and both are sharing a unique moment in time because it's never been arranged in that way before. And, and, and what that generates for the listener is a feeling, it just feels completely mm. organic. And I think that's, there's something in that track that it feels, 
It feels organic. The movement of the music, the movement of the voice, the way the story's being told, it sort of sneaks up mm. on you. Yeah. Now you're saying that, I'm I'm wondering what is actually quite an obvious question, but I never thought to ask it. Do you think he's performing that with the orchestra as it's being recorded? Or has an orchestra been recorded and then he's recording on top of it? So... I don't know. I mean, I think you. So where, where are we? So we're so, going back to we're going back to the word jazz records. So we're in the late fifties. It's nineteen fifty-seven. So I looked this up. Right. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. was recorded in nineteen fifty-seven. He was thirty-seven years old. Thirty-seven. Yeah. All right. So so going back, how did mm. he record it? I've got a feeling it would have all been live in a space. Mm. Because it, it moves like it, it is, right? Sure. It, it does feel like that, doesn't it? And again, it's that exciting tension of, uh, is this about to fall over? It's got an air of danger yeah. about it. Um, but then, you know, it catches you every time. Because I actually think the score returns to a more contemporary classical at the end there, doesn't it? Just to give you a gentle exit out of the piece. There's a moment in the narrative where it switches, where basically Roger takes on more and more control, right? Mm. And he says, I told him about it and he didn't know what to say. So it kind of sows these seeds for this disagreement between him and Roger, <laughs> which I love. And then when he's performing in this kind of fantastical place, you know, um, where he's done this great performance. He talks about sharing some of the glory with Roger, which again, I think is, is fantastic. He talks about, he wants to show that he could be magnanimous with power to give Roger some of the praise. Um, So, you know, whether in this story, it is part of his psychology or, or, part of his ego or whether it's a creative partnership with him and Roger. Right. But at the end, you get the feeling that they part ways. They part, they definitely part ways. And, and, and that lovely scene at the start where Roger's there playing these court, you know, where Ken Nordine plays the chords and, and Roger can just name. (laughs) To me, what's amazing, considering it was recorded in 1957, it's probably still too much for some people, right? It's probably because it, it's pretty out there still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know I, I've loved Ken Nordine for twenty odd years, and I, and I used I used to occasionally email him and never get responses, but I would but I would do it anyway. And he died at he was ninety nine when he died, and he kept making work right up to the end. He kind of got into these kind of crazy video art things. I mean, this this man's work is is extraordinary and kind of one of a kind, and influenced people like Tom Waits. You know, if you listen to what's he building in there, that's that's Ken Nordine to the point that Nordine and um, Tom Waits would get him in to record things. The, the, really, did, completely did they work together? Oh yeah, they worked together on wow, a number of okay. tracks. They worked together. They did a. There's a track called The Circus that was that's Tom Waits. He, I think he'd written the script and he gave it to Nordine to narrate. Um, they were, yeah, he was a huge Ken Nordine fan. 
I think Nordine worked with the Grateful Dead. I mean, he's done all sorts of amazing stuff. He, towards the end of his life, he worked with DJ Food, so he got onto the whole kind of Ninja Tunes thing, and they and he had a sort of second wave. Whether he ever toured, I don't know. Um, he he came to the fore in the 1950s, as far as I'm aware, as a voiceover artist. He was you know this gift of God um, with beautiful voice and was used to sell everything from I think from movies to to paint pots um and he was he um started to make these these records um there's a series of records called word jazz um which he made and in the i think in the 50s or 60s he was commissioned by a paint company to make a series of adverts based on their different colors and each of the colors he then wrote a piece about imagining them as a uh, as a character and um, what characteristics come with the colour and they were scored I think I think it was Chico Hamilton who scored them and it became a record called Colours which came out I feel like there's so many more Ken Nordine pieces to listen to at different points in time um, but I feel like wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find someone who was connected to him who knew something about something more about the yeah. man well let, I mean let's try and do that let's try and take a, a okay. deep dive a celebration into the cellar of experimental audio storytelling. And I mean, he's obviously a big player in it. So quickly before we wrap up, we've talked a lot about the jazz idiom, which is clearly, you know, we're in New York or in 1957. That is contemporary and exciting of what's going on in the day. Bringing it, uh, dragging it into 2023, as we are in making a podcast about it, I suppose, Clearly, there's a whole contemporary world of music out there, which is the most, you know, popular uh, style of music, which is where black American music went to, right? You know, which is in rap, which is in hip hop, which is in all the derivatives of those styles, which is so much about the spoken word and so much about how and yeah. where those words land in a uh, musical sense, but also in a, in a production sense, you know, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah. If we're addressing experiments in audio storytelling, in a way, you know, that's probably the most popular thing in the culture right now. And it's probably, it's so bright that you could be tempted to to not even see it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, we have to, we have to talk yeah. about it. We have to talk about it and we'll have to explore some of those. You know, it's going to become complicated to pick out which ones, but I think we have to stick to ones that are telling a story, you know, to and because I think that's, you know, even within in the Nordine back catalogue, there were so many pieces that were uh, that were great experiments of sound and story, or music and and sorry, music and voice, or sound and voice. But the story is the mm. key. I think that's what we have. And, to And it's to. that word experiment again, as well, isn't it? And yeah. what's wonderful about that, even though it again, you know, made in '57, it still sounds so fresh, and it still sounds. Uh, like an experiment it's not it hasn't disappeared into uh you know something bland by the passing of time it has it hasn't um softened its edges at all i would say it's still there isn't it it's still it's fresh and mm. it's alive Let's do this all the time. Let's do this each week. We'll listen to something else. We're, you know, occasionally I think we'll end up coming back round to things that we've made, and that's fine. 
but there's so much other amazing stuff out there that we can that we can draw on and we really actively want to hear and speak to other people who are excited and making this kind of work so please if you're listening to this if someone's thrown it your way and you're like oh, okay uh, it's okay but you know you should be listening to or whatever it is reach out to us get involved in it let's talk we're all, essentially we're audio junkies we need a fix if you've got something exciting that you think I bet these guys haven't heard this then we really want to know what it is and um, you know and if you've got some relationship to it you've got some uh you know reason why you want to get excited about it with us then uh you know we can make that happen too so we're going to continue to take a deep dive into the experiments of audio storytelling and i think there's within those experiments we've got this kind of we're looking at some of the early work now there's some amazing stuff that's happened as will said um in in a contemporary sense as well there's so much stuff to span and explore right through to the kind of cutting edge 3D sound storytelling that's happening at the moment. We're up for all of it. Okay. Bring Wonderful. it on. All right. We'll see you in the next episode. Please get in touch if you've got something to say or if you want to give some feedback about the show. You can get in touch with us at info at academicpodcastagency.com That is info at academicpodcastagency.com You can also, you know, DM us on um, any of the any of the social media places okay I think that's it for this week unless you've got anything to add I think there's so much but we'll just start another right. episode and we'll take it from there alright see you soon take care of yourselves be lucky Will goodbye <laughs>